As we head into our uh, message this morning, our text comes from Colossians chapter 1. Uh, it tells us who Jesus is. Verses 15 to 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will have come to have first place in everything. And then from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Phil. Good morning, everyone. Let's take a moment. We'll pray uh, together before we look at the scripture. Father, thank you so much that we're granted the privilege of gathering within these walls to listen for your voice. And we trust, ask, and pray that your Holy Spirit would instruct us now. And uh, above all things, uh, my prayer uh, through the day and really through the coming year is that you'd give us eyes to see the the matchless glory and beauty and intimacy of Christ. And that seeing we would be drawn to you and given the grace and wisdom to follow you and know you. Write that in our hearts, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you know that uh, two years ago, I was on sabbatical and I hiked through the Alps. And uh, so I wanted to tell you a little bit of a story here that frames what we're discussing this morning regarding the centrality of Christ as we continue a series entitled Better Body, looking at what constitutes a healthy church. And so two years ago, I'm out with my wife and we would, we would stay in huts and we had a website actually that kind of was giving us directions regarding how to navigate our way through the Alps. And so as you leave this one particular hut, the directions, this is how the directions read. Uh, leave the hut and travel slightly to the northeast, which is somewhat ambiguous. And then it says, for around 250 meters until you go just past the red barn that has cows. <laughs> Do you love that? So we're looking for the red barn that has cows. And then it says, just beyond the red barn that has cows, there will be a large tree, which in the Alps is a little redundant or something, I don't know, like, yes, there are many. And then it says, there is the trailhead. So we followed the directions and came to what we thought was the large tree and there were actually two trailheads. And, and we didn't know what to do at that point because it didn't say take the left or right or the road less traveled or anything like that. It just said take the trail. So we chose one. And within, I'm going to say 15 minutes, it was apparent we'd chosen the wrong trail because it, it you know, virtually disappeared. And we found ourselves you know, walking through nothing, basically, surrounded by trees. And so we said to ourselves, we think we're on the wrong trail. 
And we went back and we took the other trail and then we hiked on to Germany and it had a happy ending, obviously, I'm here. Uh, so all is well. However, uh, if, you, if you have the wrong starting point, it can lead to trouble, true? I mean, even if you do everything correctly, without the correct starting point, things don't work. And so I, we had this missed trailhead and as a result, nothing felt right and we had to backtrack and get back to the proper trailhead, or to use a biblical metaphor, we had to get back to the proper foundation. Because the, the reality as we move into our understanding of the centrality of Christ is this, we can build on many foundations in our lives, right? We can build on the, uh, on the foundation of wealth, on the foundation of security, whether that security is financial, political, physical, emotional, uh, foundation of, of uh, freedom, national freedom, personal freedom, foundation of pleasure, power, fame, adventure, beauty, community, health, lots of foundations. But uh, 1 Corinthians 3 says, there's one foundation that will lead to a life of meaning and purpose, the life for which you're created, and that foundation is none other than Christ, right? And so we looked at Ecclesiastes over the course of the summer, and if you recall with me, one of the basic undergirding themes of Ecclesiastes is this, build, pick any foundation and here's the end of it. It won't last. Health, you're going to die anyway. Wealth, it's too, hello, it's 2016, the market is tanking. Your wealth is gone, right? Voc, you know, vocation, they give you your retirement party and then they throw your stuff in the garage and it's over. I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I actually do mean to be pessimistic. Because I'm trying to orient us toward this framing question, you know, what is the foundation? And so when, when we see in 1 Corinthians 3, there's no other foundation that can be laid other than the foundation of Christ. We're being encouraged to build on that proper foundation. And yet later, we will read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that it's, in, it's eminently difficult to maintain a life on that foundation. Paul says, as Phil read, I don't want you to be deceived in the same way that the serpent deceived Eve, that your hearts might not be uh, uh, led away, and it's in the passive voice, so this is something that happens to you. You're not like, you don't wake up one morning and say, I'm done with Jesus. Your heart is led away from, do you love this? The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In other words, without a great deal of intentionality, the current of our world will lead us to build on the wrong foundation, to take the wrong trail. It happens all the time. We start well, but don't finish well, institutionally and individually. I mean, YMCA began 1844, George Williams, as a place of Bible study and prayer. Today, not so much. Harvard, a university intended at the foundation uh, to equip people for ministry and later became the bastion of some of the prominent voices of atheism in America. Hmm. Countless churches starting around the, 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 the foundation of Christ but not staying on the foundation of Christ. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer visited America, for example, in the early 1930s, he wrote to his family back home, quote, in New York City they preach about virtually everything but one thing is missing. One issue is not addressed, or is addressed so rarely that I've been unable to hear it. What is missing? Namely, the gospel of Christ. Cross, sin, forgiveness, death, repentance, life. That's missing. In the place 
of the church as a gathering of Christ followers, there stands the church as a social corporation. In other words, you can build a building, build a program, have budgets, do everything properly, and yet miss Christ. And if you miss Christ, you've missed everything, right? So it's entirely possible to use the language of faith and yet be seduced and have our hearts drift away from the uh, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We must then have a great deal of intentionality both in our personal lives and collectively that Christ remain at the center if we're going to be actually what a church is, the bride of Christ. So that's what we're about this morning. Now, uh, uh, back when you took geometry in eighth grade, there were axioms. Do you know what I mean by an axiom? Like, I remember going into geometry and hearing my professor, Mr. Knobloch, say, uh, you're going to learn how to prove things in here, but you can't prove everything. You have to start with some assumptions, and the axioms are assumptions. For example, in geometry, here's, here's an axiom. Any quantity is equal to itself, right? So two is equal to two. And we don't have to prove it. It just is that way. In philosophy, there are axioms. Existence exists. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> like, we, like we know that this morning. We don't have to argue about it. So that's, that's good. Another way of looking at axioms, you can consider an axiom then as a starting point, like it's the trailhead, right? Everything flows from the axiom. By that definition, an important question would be, what's the, what's the axiomatic truth upon which our faith flows? Like, what's at the trailhead? And here's the answer. Three words, Jesus is Lord. <laughs> That's the axiom, right? Uh, this is offered throughout the New Testament 600 times, this phrase. Uh, with perhaps the most powerful declaration being in Acts 2.36. Excuse me, Jesus is Lord, not 600 times, the word Lord 600 times. Most powerful declaration, Acts 2.36, where Peter, at the end of the first sermon that birthed the church, having received the Holy Spirit, and under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he preaches. Uh, here's his punchline for his sermon. Peter says to these people who were there when Christ was crucified, therefore let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, and 3,000 people were saved that day because they believed the truth that Jesus is Lord. And those hearers would have understood the word Lord to mean that if someone is your Lord, it means that they are your master, your owner, the supreme authority in your life, and that the function of one under the lordship of another is to say, that one's will is greater than my own. That one's priorities is greater than my own. That one has a calling on my life. And my job isn't to be a free agent or an independent agent. My job is literally to be on my knees and say, what is your will? I want to do the will of Christ. Because Jesus is not just cheerleader or guide, but Lord, right? And, 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 and so you're created then to be in this relationship with one whose authority over you is total. That's an axiom in the Bible. In the case of Christ, this totality is declared by virtue of the fact that Jesus is not only uh, the, the, the one who has ownership over our lives, but Jesus is the source of creation and the goal of creation, as Phil read in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, right? In other words, we, we read there that Christ created everything, and that everything was created for him, 
right? And so if, if Christ created everything, Christ created you. And if everything was created for Christ, then you were created for Christ. So the axiom of the Bible is this, Jesus Christ is Lord, and it's a truth. This, just, like, just like gravity is a truth. Just like you need water to live is a truth. And so if I say to you, you need water to live, that's the way it is. I mean, you could, we could debate it, but it's still true when the debate's over. Um, and, and you can choose to abide by that and drink water or not. But if you, if you don't, you pay the price. Just like gravity, same thing, right? So these are, these are like unchanging truths that are foundational. And so when Peter preaches in Acts 2, this truth is offered without any proof. It's offered, in a sense, self-evident. The only proof, in a sense, being the resurrection, right? In other words, because this one who was dead is now, we've seen him risen from the dead. Thomas put his hand into his side. I'm telling you, Jesus is the master of the universe, including you. <laughs> so Jesus is at the center. That's, it's axiomatic. It's a declaration. And understanding both the why and how of placing Christ at the center of our lives can be seen if we unpack uh, the declaration of who Jesus is in th three specific ways, which he's declared in Scripture. Christ as king, Christ as friend, Christ as lover. We're going to look at all three of these. And for, and for each of these, there's some key words that can help you apply the truth in your life. So, uh, what does it mean Christ is at the center? Well, Christ is the king, Christ is our friend, Christ is our lover. We're going to look at all three. We begin with Christ as king. Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, if you've sung the Messiah, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then this is what it says. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of his kingdom there shall be what? No end. The government. What? What do you mean the government? There's more than one government, right? We have ours. Canada has theirs. Mexico has theirs. What does it mean? The government shall be upon his shoulders. Well, you, you know, when you read Isaiah, you, you, like you come to understand that history is heading in a direction. And Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was able to look out in the future and see a day when everything is brought under the rulership of Christ. Christ is the king over all nations. And so you read Isaiah 2, all the nations are gathered together and there's, there's this outbreak of peace, reconciliation, and justice under the lordship and rule and king of Christ, right? And so, so there's this new kingdom and we know from Isaiah that this kingdom is inevitable even though we know from Psalm 1 that in this particular moment there are people raging against the reign of Christ saying, no, we're gonna live our own way. I know Christ is into freedom, we choose oppression. I, I know Christ is into generosity, we choose greed. I know Christ is into peace, we choose war. No, we will live our way. And it says in Psalm 1, uh, excuse me, Psalm 2, all the nations are raging against God. Raging, right? You can see the nation saying, no, we're going to do our own thing. And there are moments in our lives when we watch the news, when we say, when does this end? And the good news is, this ends. Right? We're told this in the scripture. And, and, and so the kingship of Christ as an inevitability, 
a world of peace, justice, no more human trafficking, no more cancer, no more war. That world is coming. And we know with total confidence, because Christ not will be king someday, is king already, though we don't yet see every enemy under his foot because Jesus is still cleaning up, the reality is Jesus is king. And so here's the hope. We know the end of the story. The kingdom's here already. It was, it was inaugurated via Christ. And that should fill us with a tremendous confidence. Uh, there were people last Sunday that I spoke with who watched uh, this football game, the Seahawks, they watched the game uh, on uh, DVR, right? So they, they, they came to church just like you're doing now, very faithful, during the football game. And then, they, and then they went home and they tried to watch it as if they didn't know what had happened. But I talked to a couple of people who said, that's impossible these days. Because if you just look at your phone, someone spills the beans, right? So this person said, so I, so I went home to watch the whole game knowing the final score before the kickoff. And she said to me, you know, it was actually kind of fun. Kind of fun. Especially in the fourth quarter when we were up 10-9 and Miss was marching down the field and she was, she was just sitting there like this. Oh, yeah, penalty, big deal. I don't care. 14-yard pass, fine. Go ahead. Oh, you're going oh, to kick a field goal. Have fun with that. I don't mind. Because like, you have this confidence of the end of the story. And can I just say, this is why uh, the gospel, the literal word gospel is what? Does anyone know? Good news. Good news. Good news. The world is going to hell. No, that's not good news. Good news. You're separated from God. No, that's not good news. Do you know what good news is? Good news is the end of the story. The end of human trafficking. The, the end of junk food. The end of credit card debt. The end of loneliness, the end of addiction, the end of, the, the end of sexual dysfunction, the end of broken relationships, the end of betrayal, the end of war, the end of, the end of death, that's good news. And that's the inevitability of history because Christ is king. So let's get on with being people of good news. But here's the deal. If Christ is king, then Christ is king. And, and, and so when Jesus shows up on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he says, hey, the kingdom of God is here, so repent. And what, what repent means is this. If I'm the king, I'm telling you now, align your life with my life. Submit yourself to my authority and make your values, my values, your priorities, my priorities. Allow me to inform everything you do. And so because Jesus is king... We are, we're both commanded and invited to align our lives with his reign. Commanded because he's king. And so do it or don't, but I'm telling you, do it, right? But it's also just an invitation because uh, we are creating God's image. And so we're free to either uh, subject ourselves to Christ's reign or pay the consequences of swimming upstream against Christ's reign. But it's a declaration, not solely an invitation. The kingdom of God is at hand. So if you feel like it, why don't you join? No, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent right now. Align your life entirely with God. But let me tell you, if we take this seriously, it's no small matter. 
Because taking the kingdom seriously means that I'm invited to align virtually every area of my life with Christ as king. Everything. Not just my sex and my sexual ethic, but my, my food choices, my financial choices, my hobby choices, how I treat my friends, how I treat my enemies, what I do with racial injustice in the world. How I, what I do with the environment, how I treat those who have wronged me. Every choice is significant at a level because of the reality that the king has come. So when Jesus says, hey, the kingdom is here, uh, repent, Jesus' intent is to raise up an alternative ethic to the prevailing ethic of our world because sleeplessness and anxiety and credit card debt and bitterness and, 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 and junk food and racism and gun violence and internet addiction and sexual dysfunction and human trafficking are not normal. But they're normal in our world. And so when I take the glorious truth that Christ is king and invite people to live under the reign of Christ and I reduce that to therefore go to church, I'm missing the point entirely. Oh no, listen, if Christ is king, then, I'm, then, then I'm, I'm commanded and required to align my entire life with Christ's reign. And when I, when I diminish the view of the reign of Christ to church attendance and Bible reading, uh, then, then in a sense I disempower the church. And this is what Kierkegaard critiqued in Denmark, right? When when he said, yeah, the, the, the church, the, you know, the institution still exists, but Christ is gone. That was my paraphrase. Bonhoeffer said the same thing in Germany. He said the same thing about the church in New York City. MLK said the same thing about the church in the South in America. We got, we got the building. We got the Bible. We got the, we got the music. We got the preaching. But has, you know, has Christ left the building? Has Christ left the form behind because we've refused to align our lives with his reign? And so th this is very practical because what does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 6, he says, listen, because I want you free from anxiety about upward mobility and position and lifestyle and health, because I want you free, seek my kingdom, what? First. And let me take care of everything, but, uh, but make your life about aligning everything that you are with my reign. Seek God's kingdom first. And so, we should become, as a community, people absorbed in the question of what does God's reign look like? Because that's what it means to put Christ at the center. And that's actually what we want to do around here, particularly this spring after Easter, as we think about the social implications of the gospel. What does it mean to follow Christ fully? And then again in the fall with some discussions. The kingdom is a front door for some people. It's how people come to Christ. I have friends who have come to Christ because they went on a mission trip to work in an orphanage. Because their heart was already aligned with the reign of Christ. And for other people, the kingdom comes later. Christ as king comes later. I, I came to Christ because I needed a friend, not a king. And then, knowing Christ as friend, I was challenged to embrace Christ as king when in Bangkok, I saw firsthand the effects of human trafficking and sexual slavery. And I said... I had to realign my, the priorities of my life, my money, my time, so that I began to represent the heart of Christ. For some, the kingdom comes first. For others, it comes later. But it must come if we're going to be disciples. So the key words regarding kingdom are confidence and repentance, right? Confidence, because we know how the story ends. Repentance, because we're called to live now in light of the inevitability of Christ's full reign and align my life with his ethics. Second, Christ is friend, also hugely significant. 
Jesus says in John 15, 15, look, I I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends, because slaves are servants, don't know the master's business, but a friend does. So uh, if like, some of you have been in employment relationships where your boss tells you stuff to do and you say, why? And then your boss says, I don't pay you to think, I just want you to do it. Have you ever heard this before? Anybody in the room? When, like when that happens, that's an that's a incredibly hierarchical relationship. And you know, Jesus comes along in John 15, he says, no, this is not the way it's gonna work with us. I'm gonna let you in on my heart. So you know exactly all that I'm about. And that's, that's friendship. So it's beautiful. Christ is not only king, but friend. And this notion of friendship, I want to unpack by looking at one particular example, the example of Peter. Jesus and Peter were friends, right? And so let's just think for a minute about what constitutes authenticity of friendship. And, and, there, and there's three things I'm going to note here. First of all, friends carry an honesty in their relationships. And so when Jesus met Peter the very first time, Luke chapter 5, Peter's fishing, and he's been out all night, and he hasn't caught any fish. Do you guys know the story? And then Jesus on the, he's, uh, Jesus on the shore, and Jesus says to Peter, hey, uh, put your net on the, literally on the other side of the boat, which if you're a fisherman, is frankly silly advice, right? Put your, put your on the other side of the boat. What, and do you know what Peter says? It's not Sunday school for Peter. Uh, oh, oh, it's Jesus. Whatever you say, no. There's a bit of sarcasm in Peter. Read it. Here's Peter. I'm paraphrasing again, but this is Peter. Yeah, whatever. I've been fishing all night, caught nothing. I'm a fisherman. You're a pastor or whatever you are, a guru, I don't even know. But, you know, since you're the hot new thing in town, okay. And he puts his net on the other side, and he hauls in a boatload. Of, so, I mean, the boats are sinking. And then, and then Peter comes to Jesus, and he says, I'm not even worthy to be near you. Get away from me. <laughs> and then Jesus says to Peter, oh, no. I want you to follow me, and I'm going to teach you how to fish men as well. It's, very, it's powerful. So the Peter here, what you see in Peter, I mean, all through their relationship, there's an honesty. There's an honesty in their relationship. Uh, Peter is aware there's a hierarchy. He's a learner. But even in Peter's learning, there's times when Peter doubts. There's times when Peter's presumptuous. There's times when Peter complains. And, and isn't that true in friendships? I mean, in healthy friendships, I realize in any friendship, I have things to learn from the other. And as soon as I stop being a learner, I stop receiving. It's no longer a friendship. But I don't learn mindlessly. I push back as well. And Peter pushes back. It's, constant, it, it's what constitutes a friendship. And if I can invent a word here, Jesus is pushbackable. Do you know what I mean by that? Like you can say to Jesus, I'm having a hard time with this right now. He can take it. So friends carry an honesty in their relationships. And here's another significant thing. Friends step into each other's worlds. Um, if I have a friend, I know, I know my friend's world. I know my friend who I skied with yesterday. I know Dave quite well. I know his job. 
I know his family. I know some of his dreams. I know some of the challenges going on in his life. I, I know. I'm in his world. He's in my world. He knows I'm a pastor. He knows what I do. He, he, he knows what I want to be doing in 10 years. That's friendship. We're in each other's worlds. Jesus is in Peter's world. John 1.14. The word became flesh. And he's right there by the boat. Jesus is in Peter's world. Is Peter in Jesus' world? Yes. In Luke 10, uh, Jesus sends the disciples out, among whom was Peter. And he says, look, in my name, go out and say the kingdom has come and, and, and cast out demons and heal the sick. And so Peter begins to behave like Jesus. He's in Jesus' world of declaring the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, if I'm going to be a friend with Jesus, I will be involved in Jesus' enterprise because I will be in his world, interested in his world, involved in his world, and his world becomes my world by virtue of friendship. True friendship has this level of involvement, right? We bought a, because we live in the so-called pass, we bought a snowblower this year. These are crazy machines. I didn't even know where they were a year ago, and now we own one that chews up snow and spits it far away into your neighbor's yard or something. <laughs> it goes. And so we bought a couple of weeks ago, and if, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, and you, uh, uh, you know when, the sewing, when they bought the sewing machine and the whole village shows up to look at the sewing machine? This is exactly what happened on our street when we came in home with a snowblower. Like, my wife had... Uh, uh, put on Facebook a picture of the snowblower and so as soon as we drove in all the neighbors came over it was crazy and it's, it's dark and it's snowing and my one neighbor goes hey I got these ramps we'll just pull it off and then he gives us a little orientation and then pretty soon we're operating this thing and spitting out snow and the neighbors you know clapping and taking pictures and it's like this is nuts right like these people care these people care. I was, I was blowing yesterday, and I look up, and there's two neighbors standing at the end of my driveway. They're just standing there looking. They're looking. <laughs> and as soon as they saw me, they were like this. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, hey, you're getting those turns that we told you. you know, eh, eh. Yeah, that's what friends do. <laughs> so here's the deal. Are you involved in Jesus' world? Because Jesus is crossing social divides, are you? Jesus is interested in racial reconciliation, are you? <laughs> Jesus is preemptively forgiving, are you? Jesus is declaring the gospel of the kingdom. To, and he's inviting people to join in the enterprise of making Christ visible in our city and world. Are you? Because that's what friends do. They, Jesus is in your world, are you in his? And then here's the other thing, friends stick together. I mean, Peter's life is a catastrophe of errors and beautiful moments of faith. Who else walks on water? That's amazing. And uh, who else says, oh, everyone else will deny you but not me and then does? And, and, and who uh, proclaims the identity of Christ? You're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then the next breath says, oh no, crucifixion? I mean, Peter rebukes Jesus. No, that'll never happen to you. And then, who restores Peter in spite of all his failures? Who restores Peter? Jesus. Friends stick together. And I love that at the end of Peter's story, the end of this, it's, it's so symmetrically beautiful. The end of Jesus' story is the same as, of Peter's story is the same as the beginning. Peter began as a disciple with a failure at fishing. 
And having denied Christ, Peter's like this, I'm going to do the one thing I know how to do, I'm going to go fishing. And so he's out fishing, having denied Christ. Christ shows up in, 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 in his resurrected body on the beach, and um, he, sh he shouts out, there's a boat out there, maybe 200 yards, and do you love it? They've been fishing all night, and here's Peter. The one thing I can do, I'm going to do it again, and all night he strikes out, no fish. So Peter, I love his phrase. He's looking way out, and Peter, uh, Jesus shouts at Peter. Children, you don't have any fish, do you? A declarative statement. And then what does Peter say? Of course. Excuse me, what does Jesus say? Of course. Put the net on the other side. And at that moment, don't you think, Peter has an inkling of who it is. And when he puts the net on the other side, and the bow begins to sink again, it's deja vu. Only this time Peter, he jumps out of the boat and he, and he swims the shore. <laughs> and he's with Christ. Restoration. Why? Here's why. Uh, friends stick together. The nature of our friendship with Christ is unconditional. 2 Timothy 2.14. We may deny him. We will. <laughs> he won't deny us. He can't deny himself. None will be there like Christ. He, he's my best friend. And so the key words here for friendship are confession and authenticity. Confession. Every time I fail, I can come to Christ knowing that Christ receives me. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. And authenticity. I'm learning to pour my heart out to God. So that I tell people, and I mean it. When I say to people, Christ is my best friend, I'm not kidding. I have a companion who travels with me. I'm never alone. And here's the final one. It's significant. Christ as lover. Christ as lover. John 15, Ephesians 5. In John 15, Jesus said, in his last, I mean, his last talk with his disciples, this is what he says. Abide in me. It's a promise. John 15. Abide in me and you will bear fruit. Right? This, this is the core of what we're talking about. Because watch, watch my hands here. Here's the king relationship. Up and down. King and subject. Here's the friend relationship, right? Peer and peer. But now, here's the lover relationship. Union. And what's significant about this is it's the union that becomes a source of peace, power, and confidence in our lives. It's the union. It's, the, it's Christ as lover that makes all the difference. I'm going to read Colossians 1, 25 to 27. Just listen as I read because it's, it's a significant passage that frames our life as a community, but certainly frames the church historically. Colossians 1, 25 to 27 says this. Of, of, this, uh, uh, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, says Paul, bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word. And then verse 26, the preaching of the word, which is the mystery hidden from past generations, but now manifest to the saints. There's a mystery hidden from past generations, now manifest to the saints. Well, what's the mystery? The mystery to whom God make, uh, will to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And this is the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Preposition is everything in this. Because what made the gospel a mystery revealed later rather than earlier is the preposition. In the, in the Old Testament, 
the overwhelming way in which humanity is portrayed vis-a-vis God is either God above us, king, or God with us, right? You see it over and over again. Uh, as late as uh, the angel's visitation of Joseph and the announcement, you will name him Jesus, Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel, which means what? God, anyone? With us, God with us. Yeah, he's right here. He's cheering me on. He's giving me guidance. He's inspiring. He's with me. It's great. Just like in the garden, God was with Adam and Eve. He'll be with us again. Great. Just like in the wilderness, God was with us. You know, the flame and the cloud when we're wandering around, didn't know where to go. God's our guide. Great. God with us. God with us. God with us. Just like the prophets talked about in restoring Israel, Isaiah 43, 5. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That's great that God is with me to inspire me, to direct me, to teach me, to give me ethics. But here's the eminent frustration in that gospel. Great, you're with me, telling me what to do, and I can't do it because I don't have what it takes. Romans 7. I try, I fail. I try at generosity. I try at peace. I try at love, I try at reconciliation, I try at truth-telling, I try and fail, try and fail, try and fail. The concluding statement, Romans 7, wretched man that I am. In spite of the fact that I have a friend, a guide, a king, a companion, someone who inspires, I still fail. Yeah, you know what I need? Not a cheerleader. I need another life. And, and, And this is the mystery, Colossians 1. Christ, not with you, Christ what? In you. So that Jesus says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Paul unpacks that in Ephesians 5 when he says, look, the relationship between Christ and the church is a relationship of a bride to a bridegroom. And not metaphorically, we're the bride of Christ. And if I'm the bride of Christ, Christ is my lover. And John 15 now makes perfect sense because it becomes almost erotic language whereby I receive this. Look, abide in me. Here's the... Here's the Here's the groom speaking, saying what? Allow the seed that is my life to be in you. Receive all that I am in you. (laughs) And you will then, like brides do, you will bear fruit. Receive and bear fruit. But (laughs) receive. Christ in you. That, I mean, that's the hope of glory. Not a cheerleader or a guide, but a source of life. And that makes the key word receptivity. And it's very practical for me. The, here's the beauty of the gospel. In our broken world, we've, like, we're always in the room when we're honest, we're at the We're at the end of our resources, not just once, but often. And so when I'm lonely, I say, thank you, Christ, that you're my companion, appropriating Christ as a companion. When I'm afraid, thank you, Christ, that you're my courage, appropriating the fact that the courage of Christ lives in me. When I'm anxious, thank you, Christ, that your peace abides in me, 
appropriating the peace of Christ. When I'm weak, thank you that it's your strength, not mine. It's your capacity to forgive, not mine. It's your generosity, not mine. It's your hope, not mine. It's your joy, not mine. I'm broken, you're whole. I'm weak, you're strong. I'm at the end of it. I receive all that you are, and the end of that is fruit. That's why Christ has to remain at the center, friends. Because if you take Christ out of the equation and we continue to gather, we have a community. But even if we gather and just talk about the sayings of Jesus, we've removed the centrality of Christ. Because we don't need sayings, we don't need inspiration, we don't need just a guide, we certainly don't need a cheerleader, we need a source of life that we don't have. And so we have a king showing us the inevitability of his reign, and we have a friend who's with us and forgives us, and we have a lover who will fill us with his very life that we might bear fruit. That's what we celebrate every time we meet. And our prayer is that 100 years from now, Bethany Community Church will still have Christ at the center. Because when you take Christ away, you're on the wrong trail. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We can gather in your name. But I pray that it would not only be in your name, but in the strength of your indwelling life. And my prayer, Father, is that these wouldn't be just for us words, but a reality into which we live daily. And thank you that in the mystery of your wisdom, you use even our own brokenness. But when we're at the end of it, our anxiety becomes a platform for receiving your peace. Our failure, your forgiveness. Our weakness, your strength. Bring us into this, Father, collectively and individually, and we'll thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray.